You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Kim Brown. You can see Kim performing every week on Wednesdays with youths at Megawatt and on, on uh, Saturdays with the cast. Welcome to the podcast, Kim Brown. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Of course. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I want to ask, I'm embarrassed to ask this because mm-hmm. I feel like I should know the answer already, but what do you do for a living? Um, I'm a writer for a website called justjared.com. Okay. Um, what kind of stuff do you write? Um, celebrity editorial about like news and um, what's going on in celebrity world, you know? Cool. Okay. Before the podcast, we were talking about uh, denim uh, care. Yeah. How one cares for your jeans. So yeah. I've, been, I've been having some issues with my jeans recently. <laughs> and if I'm okay mentioning this, you had said that your job sends you lots of jeans. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I get jeans when we do like a favor for a brand, they'll sometimes like send us gifts. Oh, super cool. Yeah. So uh, like Levi's is a big uh, brand that will send celebrities or celebrities will wear Levi's. And then if I mention Levi's, in something that I write, they'll be like, oh, thank you so much. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, uh, what kind of stuff do you write? And how did you get into it? Celebrity uh, uh, editorials. Take me through that world, please. Uh, I went to high school with my boss. Hmm. So I knew him for a while and there was a job opening and I just happened to be getting dinner with him. And he was like, oh, would you want to apply for this job? I didn't have a job at the time. so. Hmm he sort of was just like asking if I'd be interested in working there. And like two days later I had the job and was working there. Cool. What does it entail? Like what, what kind of stuff do you have to know to do your job? Well, you have to be pretty ingrained in celebrity life. So I like have to follow all these celebrities on Twitter and I um, know the most recent news about a lot of celebrities and like award seasons coming up. So all the movies that are uh, potentially going to be nominated are something that I'll probably be watching pretty soon to mm-hmm. get to know all the actors and stuff. Do you have like a current celebrity who like gives you a great deal of like following them is like you wake up every morning excited to see what your favorite celebrity is, <laughs> is up to. Um, <laughs> or is it just a job? It's just a job. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a job. Do you have a celebrity who you're like, wake up every morning just with like boiling rage at them and their shenanigans? Um, or is it just a job? I, not really. Um, there are some days where it's more busy. Like I just worked the Victoria's Secret fashion show and that day was like a, a sort of a nightmare because there's just so much going on. Mm-hmm. So on days where there's like a big event or something, it can get way more stressful. So on those days I might be like, oh. Why is this happening today? Did, did you attend the show, the fashion show? No, that's in Paris. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you attend it? Would they send you? Um, no. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, where are you from? I'm from Suffern, New York. It's uh, in Rockland County. Okay. So maybe like 45 minutes to an hour north of here. Cool. And, and how did you find comedy? Or, or Kim Brown, how did comedy find you? Um, good question. So I grew up and I did 
a ton of theater, just like straight acting, musical theater was my jam. And I went to college for acting uh, in Saratoga Springs. I went to Skidmore College. Mm-hmm. And I guess my la- my senior year of college, uh, my director, I was in a show called The Women. And the director, a wonderful woman named Alma Becker, she sort of pulled me aside and was like, do you think your character is funny? And it's a very, it's a dramatic show. The woman gets cheated on by her husband and is sort of um, like flung aside for this younger woman. Mm. And it took me a while to sort of be like, yeah, this woman is sort of funny. Like, even though her life is sort of in a disarray, she's funny. And then Alma was like, yeah, because you're funny. And that was like a really eye-opening moment for me because I really always erred on the side of, oh, I like dramatic stuff. I like doing drama. And like having a teacher be like, you're very funny, um, like you should do comedy, uh, was a big deal for me. Um, and then the next semester, right before I graduated, I did a show off campus called Noises Off, mm-hmm. which is a, a farce, a very funny farce. And Alma was again the director. And she cast me in this really funny role. And it was so fun. I had never really done like a real comedy like that before. And then I was talking to her right before I left Saratoga. Uh, to come to New York. And she was just really encouraging me, like, start doing comedy. I think it's like something you should try. Did you not know that you were funny before that? I knew I was funny, but I never thought I could like, I never, when I watched improv, I was like, oh, I could never do that. That's Mm -hmm. like so hard, you know? Um, But I always knew I could like make people laugh. It was just like probably a confidence thing. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could get in front of a a crowd and do a Herald. Mm -hmm. When I watched like the, improv troupe at Skidmore do Harold. I was like, my mind was blown. Mm -hmm. And like, um, they would have the UCB touring company would come up there and do shows. And like, it was just like my, I couldn't even fathom doing, I didn't even think that I about doing it, Mm -hmm. but I always knew I could like do like a comedy play and be like funny, but I never thought I could like make it a lifestyle, you know, like. So what was the transitional thing for you? What gave you the confidence to start it? Um, definitely Alma telling me that I should do comedy was like a huge thing that made me like, be like, oh, maybe I, I should just try taking an improv class. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to New York and I lived with a girl named Allison Rich, who, um, is really, was really big at, uh, UCB in, uh, in Chelsea over there. And she sort of kept saying like, yeah, take a, take a UCB class, take a UCB class. And I thought like, why not? So I signed up for UCB 101 mm-hmm. and that was it. Yeah. That's a pretty good common, like a lot of great improvisers get their start with the words, you know, why not? Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I had not a lot going on at that time. I had just graduated. I moved to New York. I didn't have a lot of friends in New York at the time. Uh, so I thought like, oh, if anything, if I don't like it, maybe I'll like meet a few cool people. Mm-hmm. So I thought, like, why not just do it, see if I like it. And I I liked it, but I didn't love it at first. Mm-hmm. I think the class was a little strange because people kept dropping out of it. So by the, like, eighth class, there was, like, seven or eight people left in the students left in the class, mm-hmm. which maybe is common. I don't know. But then I signed up for level two, and that's when I got, like, hooked on improv. Yeah. the uh, Well, just, like, the difference of the spirit in the room made that made that uh, change for you? I think so. And then like, I guess when you, when you make the go to sign up to level 
two, it means like, I really like this. Mm -hmm. Like there was a difference. Like I think a lot of people in level one, maybe just try it for fun. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to that level two, it's like, oh, this is like something I could see myself doing and completing this program. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's, is that true? I think uh, definitely people sign up for level one for a good time, not really knowing much about it. Yeah. And then my experience is level two. A lot of people sign up for level two because um, uh, my friends are in it or level one turned out to be such a surprisingly good time. Let's find out what level two is. But I, I have seen more people drop between level two and level three. Oh, interesting. Between one and, and two, because that's where people will kind of get the sense of like, all right, long form isn't, isn't my thing. I see that. I see that. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, uh, when this is like 2010, uh, I took my first improv class in January of 2011. Okay. And how much time did you spend there? You went through the entire program. I did the entire program in, in like a calendar year. Mm -hmm. And then, um, just took a bunch of advanced classes, was on an indie team that was very, uh, very dedicated to practicing and performing. Uh, we were called free kittens. Mm -hmm. Um, and they really shaped uh, a lot of my improv journey. Um, if I didn't have free kittens, I'm, I, I guess I, I maybe wouldn't have been doing improv as long as I've been doing it. Cause it was really nice having that like group of people who we practice for three hours every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, ta- and like approached it as if it was like a class, mm-hmm. you know, we'd like learn, we'd, then we'd do a few sets and we'd talk about like what, what was good, what was bad. And it, it, it really helped. You guys had a, a a coach or a teacher come in, or or it was like self guided. No, we had a we had coaches, yeah. and we'd switch coaches every couple months, and and we'd make lists of coaches we wanted to work with. Yeah. yeah, were you performing, or or it was like largely? Yeah, we had a monthly show at the Players Theater for years. Oh, cool. For years and years, every Friday, every third Friday of the month for years, we would perform there. Yeah, doing like heralds and stuff. Um, we'd switch up the forms, uh, but yeah, we'd do some heralds or just like montage sort of stuff. Yeah. I didn't, I, I stopped doing classes at UCB before they created the advanced study program. Okay. Um, so what was that like? The advanced study program. So basically after you complete 401 there, you have to apply to get into advanced study based on teacher recommendations. Mm -hmm. And then depending on how you did throughout the levels, they'll let you in or they won't. Mm -hmm. And once you're in, it's sort of like the conservatory program here, kind of you, except you have, when I first started in the advanced study program, I think, I think you just like were able to sort of sign up for a class, but now it's a lottery system there. So you have to like apply and then it like automatically tells you, nope, you're not in Mm -hmm. or yes, you are in. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get in a class there. Were there any that like really stuck with you? Mm, I really liked, there was this class called the way of the samurai and it was just basically learning to make like strong choices. Mm. Uh, But the group of people was so fun. It was a Saturday afternoon, which is like a totally different vibe than like a Thursday night or a Wednesday night, like after people come from work. So Saturday afternoon felt like really fun and loose for some reason. Yeah. It was just like a really fun group of people. Yeah. 
I kind of like teaching Wednesday night classes a lot. Yeah. Saturday morning classes are a little bit of a drag for me. That's where I notice like a lot of like people show up hungover. Oh yeah. Or people are like chronically late or like it takes longer for people to warm up. There's when you get like a really good solid Wednesday night class, you tend to get a lot of people who are really excited to get to be there. Yeah. Wednesday's a good day because it's like right in the middle of the week. So it's not like Monday when people are like, oh, it's Monday. Yeah. Yeah. I've taken some Friday night classes, which are weird. Yeah. yeah. I feel like day of the week is totally dependent. Yeah. Is like, is indicative of how the class is going to be. Yeah. They're like a Saturday, a Saturday morning class is great for upper level classes, like a level yeah. five or level six or something is a perfect time for it. But like a level two class or a level three, a lot of people will, will, uh, make, they think they can party harder on Friday night than their bodies will allow. Yeah, I think I think I took level two and level three with you, and mm-hmm. both were on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. One was like twelve to three. One was three to six. Yeah, I like yes. Saturday classes. Yeah, I would prefer to go on a day where I don't work mm-hmm. the full day before. I think I probably would too. If yeah, I were in that situation, it can be a drag. Yeah, I do, but I like how appreciative people are of improv mid. Totally. It it seems to just like, it's actually really fun. What, what I'll notice with Saturday classes is they will tend, this is like grotesquely overgeneralizing, but they will tend to either be uh, um, very committed people who really love improv or uh, people whose commitment like wanes over the course of the weeks. Okay. Interesting. Wednesday, but, but like people who like have like a primary, like obsession with, with improvising midweek, you will get some of those people, but it's a lot of people who just like want something fun to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. And it can be really fun to teach those classes because like it's less important. It's just more about the good time. And you end up like getting more done sometimes. Yeah. Because you just have that great spirit of like, ah, fuck it. This is so stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to do what makes me happy up here right now. And it's great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've taken, I feel like I've taken class on like pretty much every day of the week at any different time. Like my first, my UCB one level one class was on Wednesdays from three to six, which Mm -hmm. is such a weird time to do improv. Yeah. It's odd. That is like, it makes no sense. Like, Who's doing improv on Wednesday at 3 p.m.? Yeah. So um, maybe that's why I wasn't sure about improv during that class. It's just like a weird time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like, I, I don't know. I've done, I've done Sunday morning improv. That's always weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of Saturday afternoon. Did you get serious really quickly? Oh, yeah. By level three at UCB, I had got cast in a show um, a Shakespeare show upstate. So I had to leave before I could do level three. And I remember being like so upset that mm. I couldn't do level three and that I was like doing a paid gig upstate, like a Shakespeare show, mm-hmm. which is like so silly. Cause at that point I was like pursuing acting like really hard. And um, I couldn't take 301 until like September. And I was like, Oh, is this going to like hinder my, my improv training that I'm like waiting to take 301. It was like a huge deal for me. What were you afraid of? Was it a question of like advancing through the ranks or was it a thing of getting rusty? I think it was both. And like, I was coming up with a lot of the same people at that point. So Mm -hmm. I had taken level one and two uh, with a bunch of the same people. And then it was like, Oh, I'm going to fall behind. Um, I'm, I'm, 
they're going to like be in practice groups and I'm not, and like, I'm not going to remember what game is, you know, just Mm -hmm. all this stuff that new improvisers I'm sure are thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, In the end, it turned out completely fine. fine. Like I literally was like three weeks maybe behind some other people. Yeah. And it's so silly to think of it as like, I'm behind it's how it, for the first like few levels, it definitely feels that way. Yeah. And your journey is your journey. Yeah. Um, I've taken blocks of time off from improv and come back and been like, oh, wow. I actually feel way better about improv now than I did before as if I had been doing it that whole time. Yeah. I, well, I've never taken a break from improv, mm-hmm. but I would assume you gain a little perspective and, and it, it's easy to lose your sense of like, purpose sometimes yeah you get like carried away with the stream a little bit and you start like finding yourself doing things because you have to or doing things because everybody else is doing it yeah it 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 was nice I've taken like a few like little breaks and then I actually took maybe like six months off maybe like two or three years ago right before I started at the magnet actually yeah I took a little time off and it it felt like nice to clear my head and figure out like why I love improv and why I'm doing it yeah, I you, um I read uh, Alan Rich's book on acting mm-hmm. called The Leap from the Method. Have mm-hmm. you ever read it? I have not, but I've heard of it. It's pretty good. It's got like very simple practical advice and it's short, which I appreciate in a good acting book because <laughs> it does not take very long to read. But like he breaks down like the five constituent things that you need to have in mind at all times. And I'm going to mangle it because it's been a while since I read it. But it, one of them is just your reason and it's not your character's objective. It's just your reason for acting to begin with, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting to have that in, in a like system in this guy's system that you never want to forget your specific reason for why you're doing any of this stuff. Yeah. And if there's one thing that I really learned at Skidmore, it's that the sometimes the best performers are the ones who have like a lot of just life experience who like go out and do other things besides acting or yeah. besides performing, like go travel uh, go see a movie that you would never see, you know, try different things. Yeah. Who knows how it'll influence your acting or influence your improv. Well, Dave Pasquese quotes Dale Close uh, uh, in a bunch of interviews where he says that uh, Dale's direction to his class was that your job as an improviser is to go out and live an interesting life and then get on stage and tell people about it. Totally. Totally sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. I forget that. Yeah. Uh, so you took a break. What brought you to Magnet after the break? Mm, the the big reason why I started taking classes at the Magnet was because Chrissy Grubel, who's a great improviser uh, here at the Magnet, she was like, you got to take a level one at the Magnet. Mm. She was a real big influence on me. And she, I'd performed with her a ton just over the years. I knew her very well. And I remember one day I was just like, browsing the Magnet website, and I really had missed doing improv and performing regularly. So I was browsing, and I saw a class, with, and it was Hannah Chase's Level 1. And I, um, there was a, it was full. There was a wait list. So I, like, texted Chrissy, and I was like, oh, should I, like, put myself on the wait list for this class? She was like, why not? Yeah, Hannah's the best. And I put myself on the wait list. The class was starting in, like, two days. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to get in. And then I ended up getting in. Mm. So I was like, well, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to take a class and see what happens. See if I want to go through another program. Mm. And honestly, it was amazing going through a second 
program. I like loved doing really? a whole new program. Yeah. yeah. Well, I why, loved it. Well, why? Um, it was, um, I had taken the UCB classes, uh, years before I had started at the magnet. So I had just all this class experience, but then all this time where I was like just doing indie shows and practicing on my own to then go back and have like a school structure with like a different sort of perspective on improv from all those teachers was so eye opening to me as a performer mm. that there's like different ways to uh, view improv even. Um, and it was just nice having that school like those lesson plans once a week yeah. again, after having a lot of time off from class. It, it, it's actually amazing. Um, sometimes just going back into a class and mm-hmm. having a teacher give you a scenario for a scene to play. And then you'd go up and you just do the best scene of your whole life. And it's so easy and simple. Yeah. I had that experience doing a Rachel Hamilton class one time where she just put me, I was a guy on a date at a restaurant and I was feeling overwhelmed by, by the woman who I was dating because she was so smart. And I felt kind of like a little inferior. Uh That was the direction. And then we played a 10 minute scene that still ranks as like one of my favorite scenes ever. And it was just like a feeling of like, Oh, this is so simple. Yeah. Just take, take the direction and, and do exactly what you're told to do and have a great time. It's like, Oh my God, it's yeah. so relaxing to get to improvise. Totally. Well, so like when you, when you come back into a class after you have some experience and after like the nerves and uncertainty and, and that feeling of like, you get rid of that feeling like you're cramming for a test. You're like, it doesn't matter. It's all fine. Then classes can be just super, super easy going. Yeah, it was just like, it was pure fun. Like I wasn't worried about all these improv rules and all these, um, the pressure that I felt a lot of pressure going through the first program that I went through just to prove that I was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure a lot of, maybe a lot of people feel that same way, but this second time I was like, well, this is just, I'm really doing this just for fun. I'm really enjoying it. I, I'm having a lot of fun with the people. I thought all my teachers were great. It just was like a total different experience. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is, do you think that that is just a difference of kind of where you were at going through the different programs or is there like a, is the atmosphere itself conducive to, to, uh, um, I mean, I guess it's just a, a wildly different context in the two schools. I, I think it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. I w- I'm not pursuing like acting really anymore. I, I do this all for fun. Mm-hmm. So um, just to be able to come here in such a supportive environment and just do for fun was like really great. Um, used to be a lot of a bigger mm-hmm. school. So it, it was, I didn't have like as many friends there, I guess. By the end of the time I did the magnet, I was like so friendly with so many people. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so you do the magnet program. Mm-hmm. How long between uh, ending that and I guess your first big show here was joining the cast. You were on the cast before Youth was put together, right? Yes, I I got officially added to the cast. I guess beginning of September. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, how's it been for you? Great. It's a. It's such a fun. Uh, different sort of form. Mm. I love that we do something different every week. Every week your your brain is stretched in a different direction. Every week it feels like someone else on the cast is like an expert on that particular theme, which mm. is really fun. Um, so we're learning a lot from everyone. Uh, 
the backstage portion is always so fun. Uh, going backstage after being on stage. It's just like a really cool form. Yeah. Have you had a, a particular favorite one or one you felt a particular expertise in? My, you know, my, the first time I, I had sat in with them a few times before I was officially added. And the first one I ever did was like an experimental, like art, artsy, I can't remember the official name. It was like experimental theater. Mm-hmm. And that was so fun. Cause it was like, you got, we had permission to do whatever we wanted on stage. That yeah. one was so fun. Um, we did a Harry Potter one that was really silly and, um, like maybe half of us knew a lot about Harry Potter and maybe half of us didn't know a lot about Harry Potter. So it was like really fun sort of like guiding people or guiding our, 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 our teammates into, uh, situations that were very Harry Potter like. Yeah. Um, are you in the half of, of knowledgeable or not knowledgeable about Harry Potter? I was pretty knowledgeable about Harry Potter. Yeah. Cool. And then we did Gilmore Girls last or couple of weeks, couple back. weeks yeah. ago, and that was really fun. Yeah, you're a, a, a confirmed Gilmore Gilmore Girls nut. I'm told. I know a lot about Gilmore Girls. Yes, cool. I reached uh, uh, my saturation point as Megan was researching <laughs> the show. I got super into Gilmore Girls, but then like absorbed three seasons worth of it in a few days, and had like a All right, I need to calm my brain down for a little bit. Totally. Seven seasons worth of Gilmore Girls is a lot of. It's a lot of Gilmore Girls. Yeah. It's just a lot. Even watching one episode, sometimes I'm like, oh, okay. It's a fun show. My favorite thing, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this observation, but I'm, I'm so taken by all the background extras constantly. I feel, I feel like that's like a a thing in the Gilmore Girls world. Like there are people who watch for the background extras. Yeah. There's this like one famous scene where a guy like goes to take a bite of a burger, doesn't, puts it down. Uh-huh. And then, oh God, what does he do? It like doesn't make any sense. He like goes to take a sip of but like doesn't, soda, doesn't, doesn't the, do yeah. it. And people like highlight those and put them in like gift form. It's such a weird like detail to put into your show. But there, there's an episode in the first season where Sally Struthers' cat Cinnamon passes away. Right. And she has a wake for cinnamon mm-hmm. and I don't know, maybe 300 people turn out for this <laughs> wake and they're at her house for like fucking hours. They're at her house yeah. for like 12 hours or something. And there's so much activity going on in every single shot. It's the funniest thing because there are shots, there are like intimate shots of like two characters talking like Sally Struthers and like Lorelai are talking. Mm-hmm. And this, really there's no reason for this to be anything more than a two shot. There's no narrative purpose to anything, but with every single reverse angle, there's like 20 people in the background, all doing individual tasks. And it's so distracting and hilarious by far my favorite thing in the show. And I love that they highlight on the show so much how small of a town it is and how everyone knows each other. And there's like constantly background people that you're like, how did all these people come to this one festival that they're having? Yeah. Hundreds of hundreds of people that it's like, you've never seen before. Yeah. Yet everyone in the town apparently knows them. Yes, it's great. There's almost always like a guy in the background reading a newspaper and like nodding aggressively <laughs> to whatever he's reading. I love it. It feels like like a second like a, a a second assistant director or something was like given like carte blanche. Yeah, and like gathered all the extras and like made a speech to them of like you're not just extras, you are artists. Each of you is a unique individual totally. with a unique story. You are all the main character of Gilmore girls in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and you see like a bunch of proud extras just like going off and giving themselves 
business. Okay. They all have so much business. It's the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. The extras are like a big part of Gilmore Girls for sure. For sure. All right. You know what? Now that we're talking about it, I'm jazzed about it again. I'll probably go on and watch some more Gilmore Girls. Where did you there. leave off? I'm at the end of the third season. So uh, uh, graduation is coming up soon. Okay. And there's a bunch of shit with what's his name? Jess and yeah. Dean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a big part of season three. Dean's going to get married and, and the other guys, he's, it, it, Luke threw him out. Right. Yeah. And Lorelai like finds herself alone without Christopher. Yes. Is Christopher like a big part of the yeah. end of season three? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I also, I relate strongly to Luke's character on that. His no uh, cell phone sign. As soon as I saw that in his diner, I was like, yes. Oh yeah. I'm with that guy. In the revival that on Netflix, the sign is like updated. Mm-hmm. To read like no man buns, uh-huh. no like all these like Luke things. Yes, the science has like a, a a list of new things. What was your take on the uh, on the revival? So I made it to the twenty five minute mark. <laughs> that seems to be where a lot of people made it. That's is like a like a it's a very divisive mark in the in the revival of Gilmore Girls. Where's the, the minute mark? Where's what's what happened to the twenty five minute mark? I, I can't tell you because I got distracted, but I can tell you what happened before the twenty five minute mark. Okay. Is the flashback to Lorelai's father's funeral, where Lorelai oh. had her bizarre drunken exchange with everybody that seemed like really out of character for her. I know, like I know that Lorelai is like sort of. has never been in a great place with her parents, Mm -hmm. but I still don't know if anyone would actually do that at a funeral. It just is so insensitive and just, it's just a bad look. Yeah. Um, Also, it's also like she, so a little setup for those of you listening, I have no (laughs) idea what we're talking about. She's at like her father's like after the funeral and her mother, a bunch of people are sitting around the table and her mother is like, I, I, it would be nice if we all went around and told a nice story about my husband. So then Laura is like, oh shit. And she's like trying to trade places with everybody to make them all go first, which seems to me like, well, her character is partly defined by her inventive ability in the moment to constantly have something to say. You know what I mean? Like she's very good at that. She's very good at like fielding things and like de- dealing with situations. Yeah. And all of a sudden she's like desperately trying to stop herself from saying these like horribly offensive things about her father. Just like, it was like weird behavior for anybody. It was weird in human behavior. I've said it. And she knows her, how her mother is going to react to that. She knows what's going to happen if she says something as yeah. horrible as she said. Yeah. So why would she do that? It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. But anyway, back to your question. It was, it was a fine I, I liked it because of the, like, mm, how it just, like, brought me back to how much I loved Gilmore Girls when I was, like, a teen. Yeah. I think there was a good amount of problems with the revival, but I watched it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Made you feel all warm. Yeah, exactly. It was, like, a, a nostalgia thing. Yeah. But, yeah, Rory and Lorelai have some major issues, I believe. I think so, too. Yeah. So one of the things with the cast is that, like you're saying, every week somebody in the cast is bound to be an expert on what you're doing. And one of the things that's so nice is unlike your average improv show where there's something kind of neutral about an average improv show, you, you just kind of do your best to, to do the show well. But this is one where you guys get to kind of deconstruct your passions and, and bring them to life. You get to play whatever 
you really love. So like, what's the process like of creating a show when, when Hannah suggests let's do Gilmore girls, how do you guys go about recreating something that you really love and like honoring it? Usually Hannah has like a, a base plan and we'll like go over, um, she'll like tell us the plan and then we'll all sort of input, like, what if we did this or what if, um, this is how we approached it. Or what if the backstage looked like this? Mm-hmm. Um, the suggestion is often a big deal for us. Like uh, for Gilmore Girls, we were like, weren't sure if we should get the episode title or or just the suggestion of the season since the um, the revival was based on like fall, spring, summer, winter. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up going with the last four words, which is like a big Gilmore Girls uh, sort of a big deal in the Gilmore Girls world. Mm. So the the suggestion really, I feel like, shapes a lot of what we do. Um, yeah, so it's really, it's really like a group effort, sort of. We figure out what we would like to see from our show. Mm-hmm. So it's like reverse engineering a little bit. You, yeah. You have a sense of what the event should feel like for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you kind of back up as to what choices are going to be helpful for that. Yeah. Cool. Like we did a cartoon edition a couple weeks ago. And we really like we're torn between should we do like a more Looney Tunes type show where it's like montages of like different crazy characters or should we do something more like SpongeBob where there's like a show, there's like a beginning, middle and end to SpongeBob's journey. Mm -hmm. And like we had a big like back and forth debate about it. Like, well, what would be what would be more entertaining? What what do we want to do more? Do we want to have like a beginning, middle end or do we want to do like these fun little sort of like. Uh, Bugs Bunny uh, and Daffy Duck have an exchange. Then like Roadrunner and the Coyote have an exchange, you know, like a more montage bit show cartoon. Mm-hmm. We ended up going with the SpongeBob, which I think was. The smart choice. Yeah. Yeah. Have there, have there been any forms that you've done that have terrified you? Uh, terrified me. I am not a musical improv person. Mm-hmm. So any musical improv, I've not, I've not been around for a musical improv show yet, but mm-hmm. I've already thought about, oh gosh, if they do like a musical show, like I don't want to do that. Yeah. And yet musicals, like straight up musicals are your jam. I grew up doing musicals. Yeah. So it's very weird that I wouldn't want to do one, but I think just the combination of combining improv and singing yeah. is, is terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, I've never taken a musical improv class. I probably never will. Um, Bold words. Eh, take, I, take that, Michael Lutton and gang. <laughs> it's terrifying. Like, I'm truly, when I watch a musical show, I am impressed. Like, I sit there and I'm like, I, I would never be able to do that. Yeah. But you said that the first time you saw people do Harold. That's totally true. Yeah. You never know. Okay, I won't say I'll never take a musical class, but Much better. if the cast did a musical right now, I would be very nervous. Yeah. Would it be, what's the fear explicitly? Let's talk this through. Let's get to the bottom of this. Is it you'd be afraid that you'd open your mouth and gibberish would come out? That's my consistent fear when I'm on stage. No, it maybe goes psychologically deeper than that, actually. I, I had this love of musical theater, but my singing voice was never like very great to where I was like competing with, the great singers in the musical theater world. And that like sort of got me in my head. And like, no matter how many singing lessons I took, it was like, I had a very limited vocal range. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sing like very high notes, um, which is like a lot of the musical theater canon. You have to be able to, especially modern musical theater. It's like all these like high belt notes. And I just like, couldn't do that. So I think like I stopped doing a lot of musical theater because I was like, 
worried about my singing voice. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not trying to talk you into doing musical improv, but it might just be the ticket. <laughs> One of the things that is like really nice about like improv in general is that the whole thing is basically done like with a gigantic pair of air quotes on the stage. Yeah. Know? So like musical improv, and I'm certainly no expert on the subject, but it, it seems to be more about creating the impression on the audience of a musical show without necessarily hitting all of the things. Like you don't necessarily have to have a wonderful voice to be an outstanding musical improviser. You don't have to create the most exquisite songs or the most inventive songs to create the impression that you are, you know what I mean? Totally. Which is also something of non-musical improv that's true too. You don't have to be the world's greatest actor. You can actually be kind of a crap actor and still do really like moving, excellent, work because like we're all under the umbrella agreement that like the very fact that we call it play and instead of instead of acting gives you permission to be a little rough around the edges and have totally. people be like I'll forgive all of it I'm only concerned with with the the pretend that's happening I'll forgive all of like the the shit that's not working around it totally yeah it just makes me nervous I guess that's fair the enough. bottom line of it fair enough well, that's a, you, know, you don't have to justify yourself to me, but I think you should do it. I think you should try it. <laughs> I think you'd be great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so if the cast ever did one, I would do it, yeah. but I'd be like a little nervous for it for cool. sure. Fair enough. Is there any, would there be a suggestion that somebody could give for the cast that you would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or you would like lie and say that you were sick that week when you knew better. You knew you <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I pride myself on being like game to try most things. Um, like any form that we've had thrown at us, I've, I've done, um, I don't know, maybe something like political. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't really want to do any sort of political commentary right now, especially in this political climate we're in. It's going to be a while before we can bring that onto stage. Yeah. It won't just suck all the fun out of a room. Yeah. Cause it's just not funny. Yeah. So maybe something of a political nature, I'd be like, no, like we almost did a debate, uh, back in November. Yeah. And then we just nixed that idea. Yeah. Uh, good idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's see how long it takes before like the climate changes again. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, weird time to be a comedian now. Yeah. Those, yeah. those first couple of days after the results were announced were definitely terrible. Like, yeah. I really have to scr- talk about a great time to know your reasons for why you're doing everything or, or to like have to like really investigate those reasons. Once the Wednesday after the election was such a terrible day. Yeah. It just felt so the sadness and the, in the air was palpable. Yeah, very much so. And uh, we did Megawatt that night. And I remember just everyone was so sad, but then the audience was so, so supportive that night Mm -hmm. that it actually was like, it was like therapy doing that show that we did uh, the Wednesday after the election. Yeah. And and a lot of us were like, we almost didn't come. I almost didn't come. And I, I too was like, I don't know if I can do like a 10, 15 show right after the election. Like I just felt so terrible. Yeah. But, um, but then it turned out to be an outstanding 10, 15 show. It was just like, it, I'm so glad that I did it and was with my teammates who were all feeling the same way. Yeah, it was a hard day, but. Yeah, there, it, it, like, 
by nature, I think doing comedy and specifically doing improv comedy is such a frivolous thing. Yeah. It's like super frivolous. That's part of the charm of it is nobody has to be in the room for any of this stuff. We, we, human beings can very comfortably get by for the rest of our lives without any of this stuff being a part of our life. Mm -hmm. And part of like the, the like real pleasure of it is like, well, we kind of live for the frivolous things. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they're the things that give us like the most enjoyment. Uh, um, and there's a lot to be said for just like uh, um, a bunch of people pointlessly choosing to come together to exercise a, a huge amount of collective intelligence and skill to do pretty much the stupidest thing they can think of doing. There's, <laughs> there, I mean, there's a lot to be said for like using our intelligence that way. That's really great. Totally. But like right after that election, there was like a stark feeling of the frivolousness or the pointlessness of this. Yeah, exactly. And that was a good night. I showed up for the ten fifteen, and it, it oh, yeah. felt great because it felt less scary. Yeah. It, like as long as there's a room full of people who are like laughing, the good laugh, not like the bad mm-hmm. evil laugh, but like the good, you know what I mean? Like yeah. as, as long as there's a room full of people laughing, it feels like none of these problems are insurmountable as long as there's a laugh happening people's brains are operating on that level like there's some way that we're able to deal with this stuff it it, I'm, i'm convinced of that yeah it's just the hallmark of a healthy thinking brain that you're able to be lit up for sure the good kind of laughing right not the bad horrible kind of laughing Mm. boy what a huge bummer but that was a great show yeah, yeah, it was it was a great audience. Yeah, I was very uh, happy to see that many people there. It was really nice. I think it was a really welcome thing. Like, I don't know, everybody was feeling so horrible that day, and like, how long can you sit in horror and misery? And there, there is a little bit of that thing of you feel unmotivated to want to get up off the couch or get out of the bathroom. Yeah. But the yeah. longer you stay, the worse it feels. At least for me, yeah. it, there's like a thing of like, it feels terrible to motivate myself to move, to get out of here. But yeah. ultimately, what choice do you have? Right. How's youths doing? Great. Is this your first uh, house team? Yes. Or, yeah. Um. So like, how's it? There's obviously a bunch of differences between an indie group mm-hmm. and a house team. What, what has that been like for you? Yeah. Um, I'm, I feel really lucky because I genuinely love everyone who is on youths and we all play really well together. We click really well. There's been like no sort of tension or problems. It's just like a really great, nice group of people. So it really feels almost like a group of people that, maybe we formed together mm. versus like the school forming for us. Mm. Um, so it's been sort of a very easy team to be on. Um, it feels rather like an indie team. Um, Chrissy is our, Chrissy Grubel's our coach and she, she's, I mean, we're doing like really fun exercises with her and we're doing a Herald right now. So I guess that's, the one thing that it's like, oh, it feels a little more like regimented mm-hmm. because we're doing a Herald um, instead of just like a fun montage or something. But so far it's been great. What, uh, any exercises that you guys are doing that have been 
uh, uh, like a new favorite for you? Uh, actually, we had practice yesterday and Chrissy had us do um, Harold's, but with like a qualifier to them. Mm. And she had us do one Harold yesterday that I thought was so fun. We all eight of us, or there, there was someone missing, so all seven of us had to be in every scene. Mm. That didn't mean we had to talk in every scene. That didn't mean we had to be like an, a person in every scene. We, she gave us like the option of being just like a an object or um, a person, or we could, we could provide backline support, but everyone had to make, be like a presence in the scene. So three first beats, the group game, three second beats, a group game and third beats. We all had to be in every scene. And that was so fun. It was so crazy. It was really cool. That's awesome. I, I, I'm just reminded of this thinking of what you were saying about the experimental uh, uh, play Mm -hmm. cast show. I was teaching a class one time, uh, uh, ben Koch and Rich Rosario were in this class as a Harold class. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, one night we did Robot Harolds, where the only direction was it's a Harold on a planet of robots. Yeah. And uh, for the one of the group games, I think Rich Rosario comes out, maybe Ben, somebody comes out and they go, initiate group game. And then immediately <laughs> everybody did like one of the best group games yeah. ever. And there's just like something to, people struggle so much with group games. And then when you put like in the context of like, okay, uh, uh, initiate group game, somehow everyone knows how to do it. It like, yeah. it's interesting how when you lower the stakes or reframe it, the Herald kind of reveals all these like awesome things to you. And you mm-hmm. kind of realize of like so many of the difficulties of the form are like things that I'm imposing. Totally. Exactly. I, I just have these like uh, assumptions about what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. And you end up making it much harder and much stiffer then it has to be. It's actually a really elastic, beautiful form if you kind of don't take the form all that seriously, which I don't think you're meant to. And I think a lot of times we put it on ourselves that the Herald is hard. Yeah. That it's hard to do a Herald, that it's like the perfect Herald is unachievable when really it's just like, it's just improv. Yeah. It's just, we're just doing what we love in a form that's maybe a little more regimented than another form. How do you feel about that? Because like uh, on the one hand, I I understand the argument of like, we want to, try really hard and we want to be, we want to do the best that we can. We want to be the funniest that we can. We want to do the smartest shows that we can. We want to be as tight as possible. But on the other hand, I I find myself more inclined to feel that at the end of the day, that's a self-defeating way to look at everything because it, it, by defining it as really hard, you make it really hard and you end up putting off all of the real pleasures of just watching a really silly, inspired, funny show. Yeah. Where do you fall on that? Well, I've been saying for years that I think it's, I think there's something about teaching the Herald that makes students think doing Herald's is harder than doing just a two person scene, Mm -hmm. or it's harder than just doing a group game, not in the context of a Herald. Mm -hmm. I think and I don't know if it's because like a lot of theaters do heralds in their performance, uh, in their, on their teams, they're like required to do heralds. Mm-hmm. So it's like, Oh, the herald is something you do when you're like on a house team and you're like amazing at improv. Right. And I think that might have something to do with it. Cause that's when I was coming up at UCB, I thought heralds are so hard. Like I can't do a herald because, um, like all these amazing improvisers are doing heralds and I'm just starting out. I can't do a herald. That was like the narrative that was in my head. And now it's just like, Oh, everyone can do heralds. Yeah. And what's really interesting is when I took level one here, um, 
after being uh, doing improv for many years, everyone in level one was so funny. Mm -hmm. It was like a group of 16 super, super funny people who all inherently understood game, knew like what funny was. And then it just, I think because there's like rules associated with improv, maybe students get like in their heads about like, oh, am I doing this right? Right. Yeah. When really like, I really think if, if you're signing up for level one of improv, there must be something in your head that you know you're funny or you know that you want to just try something new. Mm-hmm. So if you know you're funny, then like, yeah, just run with that. Mm-hmm. Like you're funny. You don't need permission to be funny. Yeah. I, I think that that am I doing this right question is like the the signal jammer. Yeah, more for o- sure. More often than not, because it makes you second guess everything. It makes you look to the teacher for feedback to see if they're smiling or not. And so you trust the teacher's judgment more than you trust your own judgment. You're making choices for the teacher to nod their head rather than because that choice makes sense to you. And I think that it fucks up scene work and it fucks up Harold's. And it makes the Harold seem so like... Dry. Dry. So many people, uh, young improvisers, myself included, I was so upset when no one would laugh at a scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear laughter and we're like, oh, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. This is how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to get laughs. But if you do a scene and there's no laughter, it it immediately breaks your confidence. Mm-hmm. And honestly, when I when I decided like, oh, I have confidence, like I'm doing this, like I know what I'm doing, that's when my improv, like it was so much easier for me to do improv. Mm-hmm. Confidence, I really believe is like, 90% of improv. Yeah. There, there's a click moment. Everyone totally. has like a click moment. And it's the, the moment where you just see people realize, it's not that they get more skillful. It's the moment where they realize, I already know how to do this. Yeah. And it's like, you don't have to be thinking of like 20 different rules when you're doing uh, an improv scene. Yeah. Just follow what you think is fun. Yeah. Listen to your scene partner and follow what you think is fun. Yeah. What kind of choices do you find yourself making? Like, where do your instincts lead you? What would be like when you put yourself into a funny state of mind before you tackle a show? Like, what is that state of mind? What is like the the filter that you have on that gets you feeling like you're about to do something hilarious? I I really feel like my mood depends on like a lot of how I I play that day, mm-hmm. um, and especially my scene partner really dictates. I feel like how I'll play that day too. Um, like I have this one, one of my teammates on youths, Tom, uh, Tom Sanchez, he mm-hmm. is so playful and funny that I know that I can make like certain moves, uh, with him and it'll like tickle him. Mm-hmm. And I love doing that for my scene partners. Um, I love to just make like really silly choices, sometimes unexpected choices. Um, but I, I really do find myself going totally instinctual now. I don't, I try not to think too much when I'm on stage anymore. Um, I used to be a big planner. I would go on stage and um, I'd see how a scene was going and I'd go, okay, this is what needs to happen in the scene now. Mm. And instead of like listening to my scene partner and having fun, I would like plan out, oh, I know what the next move should be. Mm -hmm. And I would like wait to do that move. Um, And now since sort of um, gaining more confidence, I now just like, follow what I think is fun and really like listen hard to what my scene partner is saying. Yeah. I, the, the thing that like really strikes me about that, I guess the two things that strike me about that are like, 
uh, just like going with your gut, not overthinking it, which is huge. But I also love uh, um, doing stuff that you know is going to tickle your partner. That's like such a great target to aim for instead of like doing it right, aiming to get that person to have that look in their eyes that you know that they're having an awesome time with this. Yeah, especially I I just mentioned Tom, like one scene I did with him, he was using a microphone and he was hosting this pie eating contest and he was acting like it was on TV, but it like clearly wasn't a televised pie eating contest. It was Mm -hmm. like a town pie eating contest. So I turned to him and I was like, are you on TV right now? Is this televised? And he like couldn't stop laughing because he knew he was acting like it was a televised funny thing when really it was just like this two person pie eating contest. Yeah. And I knew that would tickle him and it really tickled him. And I just like love doing that. Yeah. It's so fun. That's actually one thing because like obviously like listening to your partner is such a huge thing in improv. Right. But then like you tell people to listen and and sometimes saying listen is not the clearest thing in the world because like sometimes people will listen and then when it comes their turn to make a move they have nothing and they're baffled because i did such a good job listening but Mm -hmm. i have no response to it so like it is very much a thing of well what am i listening for exactly it's not enough to just listen to you and i think that listening for the thing that is like noticing the smile that's on my partner's face and noticing what caused that smile that's a pretty good way to listen because if I'm listening to the thing that's making you happy, then it becomes super, super easy to just do more of that. Yeah, exactly. We have these like buzzwords we use in improv, right? Yeah. Like listen or um, follow the fun or, yeah. but sometimes those words don't resonate with everyone Yeah, and like finding a different way to define them yeah. is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Follow the fun's another one. It's just like, I hate that. Yeah. I've done so many shows where our agreement before the show was like, let's just follow, follow the, the fun, fun tonight. Yeah. It's always a fucking train wreck. I know. Cause it's so like loose and nebulous. And then you find when push comes to shove and you're not getting a laugh in a scene and that part of your brain kicks on, that's now like trying to get the laugh. Now the only thing that you have to commit to is follow the fun. (laughs) You can't grasp it. And so like everybody goes in eight different directions with whatever they think fun is. You need something more tangible as a group too. I, I, I agree with you that like, Commitment and decisiveness is the thing. Like yeah. confidence is mm-hmm. the thing. It's 90% of it is just like make a choice with full confidence. Yeah. But as a group, I think you have to have something tangible to all be decisive towards mm-hmm. whatever that is. You have to be, you know, we're going to do three scenes with no walk-ons and then anything. All right. We can commit to that. Yeah. Uh, um, we're going to try to pull as many laughs as we can in the first five seconds tonight. We're going to play broad, big characters mm-hmm. um oh, we're gonna aim for really unpredictable risky moves tonight you can commit to that yeah follow the fun is not you cannot yeah. commit to follow the fun it's so vague it's nothing yeah it's almost worse i would rather just get on stage with people and start improvising with no context whatsoever <laughs> than go in saying let's follow the fun tonight yeah it's the worst i get that all right kim it's time for a portion of the podcast that we call uh, getting to know each other. Evan says we call it that. I think we call it two person monologue hotspot. And anyway, what it is is for the next two minutes, you and I are going to play a round of two person monologue hotspot. Cool. The way it works. I'm going to give you a suggestion, whatever that suggestion inspires uh, uh, that is true for you. You'll start talking about, and then at any point I'll cut you off 
uh, to like share something about myself that's inspired by anything you were just talking about. And then at any point you can cut me off so we can interrupt each other and just telling each other stories from our lives, getting to know each other in two minutes. Kim Brown, are you ready? Yes. The suggestion is a ghost of a chance. A ghost of a chance. Mm. A ghost of a chance. Um, the first thing I thought of was Casper, the friendly ghost, which reminds me of uh, Devin Sawa. Do you know, are you familiar with Devin Sawa? Don't think so. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but he was this like teen heartthrob when I was uh, growing up. And he would be in all those like teen magazines, like uh, like Teen Bop or Tiger Beat. So um, Devin Sawa was a particular cutie that I um, adored as a 12-year-old girl. So I would cut out pictures of, of all the cute boys that they just basically put headshots of in these like teen magazines. My way of uh, uh, my strategy, it actually ties into Gilmore Girls. Watching Gilmore Girls at this stage of my life felt like a refreshing return to home because my thing was I I was in high school in like the Dawson's Creek era Mm. and my thing was well clearly if I stay up to date on these like quote unquote girl shows that will give me things to talk about with (laughs) girls in real life so for a while I was like a fountain of encyclopedic knowledge and all that stuff I was following every single WB show just because it it was like a conversation starter for people um, that reminds me of Dawson's Creek reminds me of my my friend Sharon, who is obsessed with Dawson's Creek. And she uh, is this TV expert. She watches all all sorts of TV shows. And she got me hooked on Survivor, which is that CBS reality show where they stick 30 people on a desert island and you have to survive. And if you win, you win a million dollars. It's totally a ridiculous show, but it's unbelievably amazing. They act like it's you have to be this like genius strategist to win when most of the time the person that wins, it's like a total accident that they've even gotten to the end. I saw The Bachelor for the first time in my life uh, two months ago. <laughs> I guess it's been on TV for like ever. I guess it's like over a decade. <laughs> I've never seen it before. What a nightmare. Oh my <laughs> God. I, I've never hated something so profoundly so quickly for all the reasons that I assume people like about the show. But like every single moment is so forced and squeezed out and horrible and like cruel. It just made me feel so upset with the world. Yeah, I the 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 Bachelor and the Bachelorette. I feel like half of the the editing that's done on this show is is done so that um, viewers can have something to talk about on social media and mm-hmm. like um, create like gifs of like weird moments that happen. So anytime those shows are on especially if I'm like at work doing like social media for my job, it like the whole Twitter feed is just like gifts of these like weird moments. Like there was this big moment with lunch meat last season where one of the guys, I think his name was Chase or Chad or something. Oh, it was Chad. Chad was like the big villain, but he ate so much meat. (laughs) And it was like this thing that Chad would like go to the craft services table and get tons of meat and then leave his meat plates all over the place. And this was like a thing people were talking about for days in the bachelor and bachelorette world. Um, this guy, Chad, this huge villain who would like threaten people, like clearly wasn't a nice guy, but loved meat. I have no social media presence at all. <laughs> I have a Facebook account, but I barely use it. 
Um, I use it to like promote one show a week and it's like my only, my only social media thing. And increasingly I'm, I'm becoming a, a relic of a bygone age. <laughs> like I've like way fallen behind just the way that people have adapted to like live and communicate with each other. I'm like not a part of at all, which I don't regret at all either. All right. At this point, we are going to be fading out of the episode, and I'll give everyone listening to this a reason why. You may not know this about me, but I'm not the most technically oriented individual on the planet. And when Kim came down to the end of this episode, we were about halfway through our two-person monologue hotspot. She improvised a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. I was responsible for pressing stop on the recording device that we use here in the podcast. And either I screwed it up or uh, we ran out of space on the card. I think I want to call it a SIM card. I don't know if that's true. Is it really a SIM card? No. What, is the, what do you call it? SD card. We ran out of space on the SD card, uh, which means that we do not have documented for you Kim Brown's various here scene opposite a jar of pickles. I want you to know that this was one hell of a scene, though. This was a real good one. So next time you're watching uh, your favorite dramatic show on Netflix or perhaps Hulu or uh, whatever provider you have, like you to take a moment when they hit a really beautiful dramatic point. You think to yourself, boy, that's great acting. Boy, that's a good scene. And I'd like you to just remind yourself, Kim Brown's scene opposite of Jar Pickles was just as good as what you're enjoying right now. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I'm sorry for this weird ending to this episode. But you know what? Stay tuned for more episodes because we are figuring out the problem. I, I have, Evan is never letting me press stop on this machine again. I cannot screw another thing up. Hey, be good to yourself and to those who you love. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.